Good morning. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. The text this morning is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. While you are turning there, I have a few introductory comments before I get into my sermon. The first is just that I would like to say thank you. I thoroughly appreciate every one of you. While I am working my way through seminary, it is just a wonderful blessing to be able to have a church that I'm able to work in to apply the things that, uh, that I'm learning and that is patient with me through all of that. Now that it sounds like most of you are at Matthew chapter 1, if you are wondering, what is with this guy in genealogies? Let me just say, this is where the Lord has led me, friends. Um, again, as I am working my way through seminary um, and now moving into an associate pastor rather than a, a youth pastor position, um, we have discussed my, my opportunity to get up and to preach more often for you. Um, and I have never preached through a sermon series before. So Carl and I have talked about it, and that is my intention at this point. Um, going forward, I would like to preach more frequently, and we settled on the book of Matthew. So Matthew happens to open with a genealogy. If you were here the last few times that I preached, again, this is where the Lord has led us. So bear with me. Last night, my family and I had the great pleasure of being able to host some friends of ours from Appalachian Bible College uh, for dinner. Joshua and Shada are from Hungary, and they, they came to ABC the year after we moved here to West Virginia. Um, the Lord has providentially orchestrated for them to be able to move to North Carolina, um, where Yojue was able to um, finish his Master of Divinity degree. Um, and then after that, the Lord ordained that they should go to central Illinois. Um, and he just finished up an internship there in central Illinois. Ultimately, their goal is to go back to Hungary as missionaries. Um, and, and as we were talking, it just settled very heavily on me. What a strange thing that these two families should come together here in Daniels, West Virginia. One family from Hungary, one family from southwest North Dakota. Uh, but the Lord brought us together at ABC. We became friends. And it was such a joy to have them for dinner last night. They have three little boys. So our kids were all running around together playing and, and enjoying that fellowship. And then we began to talk about testimony and, and sort of along the same lines, what the Lord has done in our lives. I have often compared my life to an episode of Mr. Magoo. I can't believe I have to say this, but if you are not old enough to know Mr. Magoo, you can YouTube it later. You're welcome. Mr. Magoo, throughout every episode of this cartoon, wanders around in various environments, and he's, he's a blind man who doesn't know it. And he will wander onto an elevator, and the elevator goes up, and he somehow makes a U-turn, and then walks out the window of the top story of a, of a skyscraper. And coincidentally, there's construction going on. At that moment, an I-beam is raised up, and so rather than plummeting to his death, he walks across the I-beam, 
And, and he finds himself in all these, these situations. And about a dozen times an episode, it's a miracle that Mr. Magoo does not die. But that reminds me of the sovereignty of God in my own life. And I'm thinking back over my own testimony and all of the ways that God has moved me. And I'm just amazed. And that God in my own life can move me to exactly where he wants me to be at any given time and at every given time. I just am humbled and impacted by the fact that we were able to celebrate a baptism this morning. And no doubt every one of us would on some level, if we think about it, admit that, yeah, this is exactly what my life is. Sometimes I have good intentions, sometimes I don't. But I bumble around through life most of the time, not really knowing what's going on, and yet the Lord just moves me. And I can see throughout my life his work and how I have ended up exactly where he wants me to be. As we look at the text of Matthew, beginning in chapter 1, I will read the text later, but I, I want to spend some time on some background information this morning. The author of the Gospel of Matthew always refers to himself in the third person. Matthew, nowhere in the text, names himself the author. But we attribute this book to Matthew, Jesus' disciple, for several reasons. First of all, every early manuscript copy that we have has Matthew's name attached to it. Second, all of the early church fathers credit Matthew as the author. And those two facts sort of go together. Uh, By the second and third centuries, there was already an established tradition, at least, that Matthew was the author of this book. Third, until the 19th century, that is the the 1800s, if like me, you tend to drop zero to 100. How's that fit in there? 19th century, 1800s. Almost no one doubted that Matthew wrote this book. And in the 1800s, there arose a group of critical scholars um, who somehow were more enlightened than everyone in the 18 centuries before them, and they started to question uh, whether Matthew wrote this book or not. Um, To be frank, they questioned everything else, too. So um, there's not much credence there to this recent question of authorship. In terms of qualifications, Matthew certainly would have been qualified to write this book. He was a disciple of Jesus and an eyewitness of the accounts that he records. Uh, Probably he would have needed to be literate in two or three or maybe even more languages because he was a tax collector and he certainly would have had to keep tax records. Whenever it comes up that um, a a book is attributed to one author and and we suspect whether that author was genuine or not, the question arises, well, why would we attribute this to this person if we don't know that that person wrote it? And usually the answer is for credibility. Okay, that's a good reason. If I were to write something and I wanted to lend credibility to it, I would try to put somebody else's name on it. Um, I might might try to get John MacArthur to write a foreword to my book. And then when people see John MacArthur's name, they say, oh, well, this must be be good. Um, So that's usually the answer. Well, somebody wanted their their writing to have some credibility, and so they attached it to Matthew's name. But if we think about that for a little bit, 
Um, Matthew is an odd choice if someone is trying to, to gain credibility for their work. First of all, while Matthew was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he was not one of Jesus' inner circle. He was not Peter, James, or John. Um, he didn't have that inside scoop among the disciples, as it were. He didn't have the, the training or the credibility of somebody like Paul. Um, Paul was, was highly theologically trained and would have had a good reputation among the Jews. Perhaps the greatest strike against Matthew is that he was a tax collector. Now, the Jews saw tax collectors in the first century as extortioners, which they often were, and as traitors to Israel. If we look at how the New Testament treats tax collectors, um, references to them only come up in the Gospels, but the, the New Testament treats tax collectors as though they are uh, the penultimate sinner. In verses such as Matthew 9:10, Mark 2:15 and 16, Luke 15:1 and 2, um, I'm sure you've heard this before. There's the phrase "the tax collectors and sinners." They're paired together as though this is this is an item. And even Jesus seems to hold this view. Matthew 21:31. Despite Jesus's interactions with tax collectors, Jesus said to them. Truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. This is the bottom of the societal barrel that Jesus is referencing when he's talking to his opponents, the Pharisees. Now, I don't know anybody who likes the IRS. Nobody. But this seems like a lot of shade, right? What it, why did the Jews dislike tax collectors so much? Well, John MacArthur calls the tax system in first century Rome one of the worst aspects of Roman oppression. He describes it as methodical, relentless, and ruthless. There were basically two kinds of taxes that the Romans collected. There was the toll tax, which was like an income tax. Um, Whenever somebody was carrying a cart of goods down the road, they could be stopped at a checkpoint. Often this would be the gates of a city, and they would be taxed based on an assessed value of what they were carrying. Presumably, the person is bringing a load of goods to sell. So they were taxed that way through the toll tax. And there was the land tax, which unsurprisingly was a property tax. Now here's how it worked. Senators and other rich and important people would buy the right from the the federal government at a public auction to collect the toll taxes in a given country or province or region. And it would have a fixed rate for a period of five years. Now, I have worked for the government for five years. And if you have worked for the government, maybe you're wondering, why would anyone pay for the right to work for the government for five years? But when you hear that phrase, fixed rate, it doesn't take much imagination to recognize there is a very lucrative business opportunity here. The people who held the rights to collect uh, these taxes were called the publicani or the publicans. So sometimes you'll see that, that word in the Gospels. That's what it means. This is a person who has bought the right to collect the toll taxes in, in a given region for five years. So here's how it works. In bringing this into contemporary um, example, if I were to go to the, the federal government and I were to win the right to collect the income taxes here in West Virginia, 
The federal government might say, all right, the rate is $5,000 per person uh, for five years. And I would say, right, $8,000 per person for five years. Now, where's that other 3000 going? That goes to me. The thing is, West Virginia is a big place, and I'm not sure I could collect all the taxes adequately in all of West Virginia in five years. Um, so I'm going to hire some, some others to collect, maybe one person per county as sort of subcontractors. And I'm going to go to those people, and I'm going to say, all right, the rate is $8,000 a year per person for five years. And that person is going to say, yes, $10,000 a year per person for five years. So I'm going to get rich, and the people I hire are going to get rich. And when they come and knock on your door and say, hey, it's tax time, you know that they are there to extort you. That's why the tax collectors were so disliked in Israel. It actually is, is a, a little more involved than just extortion, though. The issue for the Jews, in particular in first century Israel, was that they knew they are God's people. They are being oppressed by a pagan government. And if you are a Jew collecting taxes from Jews for Rome, not only are you extorting me, but you're extorting me to support a pagan government that has no right to be here anyway. So the tax collectors were among the most hated people in all of Israel in the first century. The Pharisees saw the tax collectors as ceremonially unclean. So they were often practically, if not officially, banned from the tabernacle and sometimes even from the temple itself. So another implication of Matthew's position here is that at least before Jesus called him, he probably was not a particularly religious person. Um, even if he were allowed at tabernacle or at temple, nobody there likes him. Um, and just socially speaking, we recognize that is, a, that is a large disincentive for him to participate in that. Now put yourself in Matthew's place. You are an outcast, probably don't have any, any Jewish friends, seen as unclean just because of the job that you have, perhaps cast out of the tabernacle and sometimes even the temple. If you have any kind of self-awareness, you probably struggle with at least some degree of self-loathing um, and frustration with life. Israel's entire identity is wrapped up in her religion, and you are shunned in all the religious circles. And then one day, this young, popular, up-and-coming rabbi comes by. And he invites you to come and be his disciple. That is an invitation back into the religious circles. It is an invitation to respect. If the rumors are true that this guy can perform miracles, maybe respect even turns into prestige. It is welcome. And then over the next three years, you come to believe not only is this just some rabbi, but this is the Messiah. This is the promised heir of David. This is the son of God. There's probably some motivation to write that down. As far as the date of Matthew is concerned, there is no single piece of evidence that allows us to date it precisely to a particular year. Um, but if you'll bear with me, I'm going to suggest to you a date early in the second half of the first century, say 55 to 60 A.D., 
is very possible that it was written earlier than that. Um, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time on the date here because I believe it's important to understanding uh, the tone of the book. So bear with me. I don't want to lead you too far out into the weeds this morning, but I do briefly want to mention uh, something you may have heard of called the synoptic problem. I'm sure most of you have heard the term synoptic before, at least in the context of the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, Synoptic comes from two Greek words. The first is soon, it means with, and the second is a derivative of of a word that you can probably guess what it means just by the the phrase or the, the spelling optic. It has to do with sight. Um, literally synoptic means seen with or to experience together. And the idea is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke share many similarities. If you were to line them all up, as it were, and push play, um, much of the narrative is the same. A lot of the wording is the same. Some of the, the events that they highlight are very similar. And this has led some to believe, and, and even in our uh, our kinds of circles, conservative evangelical circles, um, the solution to this, this synoptic problem, quote-unquote, is, well, somebody must have copied someone else's homework. Um, they are so similar that at least two of them must have used one of the others as a source for their own, for their own gospel. Um, and again, the most accepted theory is, is what's called the two-source theory. The two-source theory goes like this. Mark wrote his gospel first, and then Matthew and Luke used Mark and another document called Q um, as sources to supplement their own research. Okay? The, the argument is a little more complex than this, but here's the gist of it. Since Mark is the shortest, he must have come first. Okay? And the reason for that is if we, if we have an important text that we want to write our own copies of, human tendency is to expand on an important text rather than to leave stuff out. So since Mark is the shortest, Matthew and Luke must have taken Mark and they add in their own commentaries and talk about the the events that they thought were important too, but they're not going to leave out things that Mark wrote rather than Mark coming later and using one of them as a source, if that makes sense. Q um, stands for the German word quell, which means source. Um, and, and the reason that Q comes into this is because where Matthew and Luke disagree with Mark, and by disagree I mean just deviate from his narrative, where they add in their own comments and their own things, Matthew and Luke often agree with each other. So the conclusion is, well, they must have had another source that they were referencing, and so they used some of Mark and some of um, Q, and then they added in a little bit of their own work. But there are several reasons that the two the two source theory doesn't work. Uh, MacArthur lists at least eight. I'm not going to get into all of those with you this morning. I'm going to give you three reasons um, not to accept the two source theory. First of all, I've already mentioned this. Until the the 19th century, the church nearly unanimously agreed that Mark's gospel was written first. Excuse me, that Matthew's gospel was written first. <laughs> uh, Matthew was written first. This was the, the position of the church until the 1800s. Um, second, like Justin Peters says, um, a little bit of common sense will help us to, to sort some of this out. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus and an eyewitness of the events that he recorded. Mark was not. 
The two-source theory says that Matthew took Mark's account and used it as a source. I mean, Matthew and Mark both record Matthew's conversion. Are we really accepting that Matthew needed a source to talk about his own conversion? I don't think so. Um, The third piece of evidence that I will give you this morning is that the Q document does not actually exist. There is no historical or manuscript evidence that suggests that Q ever existed. It is an entirely theoretical document raised in the 1800s because people noticed there are similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and so Matthew and Luke must have done this, and they must have had another source. There's no document that this is actually based on. It's entirely theoretical. So if the two-source theory is out, how do we explain the synoptic problem? Well, the simplest and most straightforward solution is that there is no problem. There are three men writing about historical events, and they all wrote about the same events. If you were to read three books on American history, and in all three books you read about the Revolutionary War and the Civil War and the Great Depression, uh, the World Wars, um, you wouldn't conclude, well, one of these guys saw the other one and copied his work. No, they all just wrote about the same history. Now, if we follow one more trail of evidence, I do think that we can get a little more precise date for Matthew than first. Okay? So bear with me. Again, we know that Luke was an excellent historian. Um, Sir William Ramsey in the 1800s was an English uh, professor, and he was a notable critic of, of New Testament authorship. And in particular, he asserted that there's no way that Luke could have written Luke and, and especially Acts. It just covers too much geography. There's no, no way that somebody in the first century could have known all the details that are in there. Um, Acts must have been compiled later by people who, who learned from um, the past and that kind of thing. And so Sir William Ramsey actually set out on an expedition to disprove that Luke wrote Acts. And the conclusion that he came to after all of his research was, quote, There are reasons for placing the author of Acts among the historians of the first rank. He came to believe that Luke wrote Acts because he was such a meticulous historian. So, Luke records Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 21. Jesus made this prophecy. But Luke does not record the fulfillment of that prophecy. And so the conclusion that we are brought to is it must not have happened yet. That is an enormous historical detail for someone like Luke to just leave out. And in case you're, you're thinking, well, maybe it just wasn't important to his narrative, um, I would point out Acts chapter 11, verse 28, where he says, One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. So there's precedent in Luke for recording a prophecy and its fulfillment. So it would be very strange for Luke to record the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem and not that fulfillment. So that where Luke does end Acts is with Paul's imprisonment in Rome, presumably because Paul had not been released yet, and that brought us up to speed on the, the contemporary history. So this would give us a date for Acts of 60 to 62 AD. Acts is the second part of Luke-Acts, so Luke would have been written before 60 to 62 AD. And if we accept that Matthew came before Luke, 55 to 60 is pretty reasonable. 
although some have argued for a date as early as 50 A.D. that Matthew was written. Now, I've spent a lot of time on that. Why is this important? Because it helps us to understand Matthew's perspective. The early church started in Jerusalem, right? And it grew outward. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. If we are talking about Matthew writing this book between 50 and 60 AD, it is within 30 event, 30 years of the events that he is recording. That we're talking about a very young church. And surely by this point, Paul has, is probably on his third missionary journey, so the gospel is spreading out from Israel. But the Jews are still the primary audience for the gospel in Matthew's mind. He was a Jew writing to other Jews about a Jewish Messiah still in the early circle of church growth in Jerusalem and Judea. Matthew has been described as the most Jewish of the Gospels. What does that mean? That is, Matthew contains at least 40 formal quotations from the Old Testament. Matthew quotes the Old Testament a lot, which if he, if he is writing to Jews, makes sense. They would understand it, they would get the references, they would accept the authority. And so Matthew references the Old Testament quite a bit. Um, Second, Matthew often uses the formulaic expression, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So Matthew writes, and he connects the events that he's recording to to prophetic utterances 16 times. The first time is in Matthew 1.22. 16 times Matthew attributes the events he's describing to uh, prophecies that had previously been made in the Old Testament. Next, Matthew records more interactions between Jesus and the Jewish authorities than any other gospel. This is very Jewish-centered, and he really highlights the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. Also, Matthew opens his gospel with a genealogy of Jesus, which is a very Jewish practice. Not only does he open with Jesus' genealogy, but he traces it back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. This book is of great interest to Jews, or it should be. Well, why is genealogy so important to the Jews? I want to take a moment um, to address that issue. We talk a lot about genealogy. Again, I've been through a few of them recently. Um, Why is this important? Well, let's think about it. Descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are God's people. They have a covenant with God that guarantees his favor and his faithfulness to them. To them, being able to prove that you're a Jew is very important in connecting uh, your identity with the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Second, obviously, religion is very important to the Jews. And only Jews are allowed to enter into the temple. So if you're a Jew in the first century and you can't prove that you're a Jew, are you getting into the temple? Probably not. In Acts 21, verses 27 to 29, uh, the people are stirred up against Paul because they believe that he has brought Gentiles into the Jewish temple, and they're prepared to kill him over this. To get into the temple, you have to be a Jew. Next, which tribe a Jew belonged to determined where they lived and what inheritance in the land they had. When God brought the people out of Egypt in the Exodus, one of the first things that they did was to organize by tribe and to take a census. And when they they captured the land of Canaan, uh, they divided it up according to tribe and according to family. And where what your genealogy is depends uh, dictates rather 
um, where you live and what your inheritance is going to look like. Next, there were other responsibilities attached to the tribe that you belonged to. For example, only the tribe of Levi could serve in the temple um, or in the priesthood, and specifically the family of Aaron from the tribe of Levi were, were the ones allowed to be the priests. Um, and they were entitled to financial benefits that accompanied their service in the temple and in, in the priesthood. They were entitled to some of the offerings and the sacrifices, and uh, that was how the priesthood was supported. Well, what if you were a Jew? What if you were uh, an, an, a descendant of the tribe of Aaron um, or of Levi, but you couldn't prove it? Well, we actually have an answer to that in Ezra chapter 2. Um, when the Jews are returning from Babylon and the Levites are coming back, Ezra chapter 2 verse 62 says, Some searched among their ancestral res- registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. So even if you were a Levite and you knew it, but you couldn't prove it, you were excluded from that part of your inheritance. Of course, it was only the tribe of Judah and the family of David who had the right to occupy the throne of Israel. Now, let me ask, if the Levites could lose their inheritance because they couldn't prove that they were Levites, what would happen if David's line couldn't prove their descent from David? John MacArthur says, It is both interesting and significant that since the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, No genealogies exist that can trace the ancestry of any Jew now living. The primary significance of that fact is that for those Jews who still look for the Messiah, his lineage to David could never be established. Jesus Christ is the last verifiable claimant to the throne of David and therefore to the Messianic line. Now, if that is true and the Messiah has not come yet, either God's plan has been thwarted or there's no Messiah. In terms of theme, Matthew's major theme is that Jesus is the Messiah and the rightful king of Israel. In chapter 1, his ancestry is traced back to David. In 2.2, the Magi ask, where is he who is born king of the Jews? In the very next verse, we read, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. The current king is disturbed. There's another king coming, and he's going to replace me. The Magi brought Jesus gifts fit for royalty. These were not gifts for peasants, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are royal gifts. The herald, John the Baptist's message in 3.2 is, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Even in his temptation in chapter 4, the, the pinnacle of temptation that Satan brings to Jesus, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, Jesus teaches about the kingdom of heaven. Now, we're up to 7 and we're at chapter 5. I've bypassed a couple, but are you getting the pattern? As as much as John emphasizes Jesus' divinity, Matthew emphasizes his identity as the king. So let's talk for a moment about the Jewish concept of God's kingdom. By the the time that Jesus came, 
it's, it should be obvious to us that they did not really understand who they were looking for. Why did that happen? Well, it goes back to our text that Josh read for this morning um, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8 and, and following. God makes a promise to David that I will establish your throne and I'm going to raise up one of your descendants to sit on that throne forever. And so the Jews understood that much. And while David was on the throne, things were good. Things were great. He's, he's held up as David's greatest, or excuse me, as Israel's greatest king. And then Solomon comes and replaces David. And, and let's talk about Solomon for a moment. On the surface, Solomon was a great king. There was peace in his time. He made Israel rich. He, he enlarged Jerusalem. He built the temple and the king's palace. And Israel under the reign of Solomon looked really good. But as wise as Solomon was, Solomon was also very foolish in a few ways. Solomon increased the taxes. He had ambition. He had things he wanted to build. And so he began to tax the Israelites. And then he began to conscript them into working parties where they would be away from home for months at a time. And there was a rotation throughout all the land of of Israel to get Solomon's projects built. And we see by the time of Solomon's death that the Israelites were tired of it. They come to his son, Rehoboam, and they say, hey, we would be happy to follow you. We love the house of David, but you've got to give us a break. Life was hard under Solomon. We want, we want you to let, lighten up. And you know the story, I, I guess. Rehoboam goes to the wise men, uh, his father's counselors, and says, hey, this is what the people have said. What should I do? And they say, give the people a break. And then he goes to the young men, his friends, and says, hey, this is what the people have said. What should I do? And they say, oh, boy, you got to lay down the law. And so Rehoboam follows after the young men and, and goes to the people and says, listen, you thought things were hard under my father. Just wait till I get started. And so they said, well, you're not the king anymore. And ten tribes left, and they followed Jeroboam. And the, the reason that I expand on that story is because I want you to see We tend to associate the division of the kingdom with Rehoboam and say, oh, well, he made a foolish choice. That's true, but we need to see that the groundwork was laid under Solomon. The people were overworked, they were overtaxed, they were tired. And so even Solomon's reign, as as good as it looked on the outside, was a step down from David. And then the kingdom splits, and of course, it's all downhill from there. Now, after the decline of the kingdom the promise of David's heir remained. And throughout Israel's history, especially through the period of the writing prophets, um, ideas about what the heir of David would be like kind of grew and they shifted and they varied. And these prophecies would come out. um, And I want to take you to one passage. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Because I think this helps to illustrate sort of the two directions that ideas of David's heir took. The first comes from passages such as Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. 
but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt around his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Now the prophet is describing a man whose reign is characterized by justice. Things are going to be good. And so with passages like that, this idea came that uh, that David's heir is going to rise up and he's going to bring back the good old days. Back when David was king, things were good. There was justice. Everybody kind of minded their own business. Um, and, and that's what David's heir is going to bring back. But there was a second view that rose up. And we don't have to go very far to see where it comes from. Um, just the next few verses, starting in verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, and their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. That presents a little bit different picture. That presents more of a picture of Eden. Or or really what it turned into was a picture of something that had never happened before, even better than Eden, even beyond that kind of peace on the earth. The first view says, what used to be will be again. And the second view says, what has never been will be. Things are going to be better than they have ever been when David's heir comes. And of course, we know, or we will learn as we work our way through this gospel, that God had something much bigger in mind than building up national Israel. Israel was not supposed to take a sense of national pride from this necessarily, Um, But when they mixed in prophecies such as the day of the Lord, where a fierce warrior will arise that will conquer all his enemies, and there's going to be slaughter and darkness and gnashing of teeth, and Israel is going to be raised up, um, these ideas all kind of mixed together, and some went in one direction and some went in another. And so there there were various views on what David's heir was supposed to be. But Jesus' genealogy is important, and it would be of immense interest to the Jews as an introduction to this kind of book, because as as one author observed, from the time of David, every potential, uh, excuse me, every um, descendant of David was a potential Messiah. David lived about a thousand years before Christ. The Jews had been waiting for a long time for Messiah to come. So the idea or the proposal that Messiah has finally arrived and we can trace his lineage back to David would have been of great interest to them. So let's turn to our text. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. 
Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Atzor. Atzor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Before I jump into this genealogy, I need to just get on a hobby horse for a moment, if you'll indulge me. I have met a lot of people who, when they come to a genealogy like this, or say a list of places in the Old Testament, um, they will not read them out loud. Um, I don't, I don't know if they'll read them silently or not. Um, but there are maybe three or four people in this room who have ever studied Hebrew. And I would say that in terms of general, your general life, this is a pretty high number. At most places in your life, there's, there are no Hebrew experts. So don't be afraid to read the list. Give it your best try. Um, there are also those who will come to a list like this and they'll just kind of sound splatter all over the back wall. They'll say, okay, I'm just going to go for it. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they'll actually do that. Um, let me caution you against that as well. Reverence for the word of God should drive us to at least give it our best try. But read the genealogies, okay? When we read them, the names will begin to stick in our minds. And then you begin to make connections. And you, you recognize names and say, oh, I wonder if this is the same person that I read about over here. And, and if you begin to follow up on those names, um, your life will be greatly enriched. I need to move on. Let's talk about common mistakes when we approach genealogies. There are basically two common mistakes, and I think one is much more common than the other. Uh, and they are, they're kind of tied up in the issue that I just talked about. But the first, probably less common than, than the second, is assuming when we come to a genealogy that we need to know everything there is to know about every name on this list in order to understand what Matthew is trying to communicate to us. Um, if that were the case, I would have at least a year's worth of sermons here, and I could preach to you one name off the list every quarter until the Lord returns. Um, it, that would be a mistake. That is, that is not seeing the forest for the trees. We get so bogged down into looking at every single person that we never get out. Matthew is not trying to teach the whole history of Israel in 17 verses here. 
the other the other mistake I think that we tend to make is much more common, and that is assuming that this is a genealogy just like every other genealogy, and so I can either passively cruise through it or just go around. I don't know how to pronounce the names. I don't know who these people are, and so there's not much value for me anyway. Uh, might as well just turn the page and keep going. That is the opposite problem. That's seeing the forest as a whole, not taking the time to look at any of the trees and doing our best to just go around it. Of course, we know that all, all of Scripture is there for a reason. Genealogy is there for a reason. So the question is, what is the author trying to communicate in this genealogy? We need to know some things. We don't need to know everything there is to know. Well, as I have already mentioned and alluded to, Matthew's main point throughout all of this book is that Jesus Christ is David's heir. One author says, Through the years of Old Testament history, men and women looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Every child of David was a potential Messiah, and the people kept their genealogies straight because they wanted to know who might possibly reign on the throne. Generation after generation went by, yet the Messiah did not come. It was only after a long wait that Jesus was at last born in Bethlehem, and those who had been waiting, people such as Simeon and Anna, saw him and rejoiced at his coming. What Matthew is trying to communicate here is Jesus is David's heir, and he can prove it. But if we take a look at, uh, at this genealogy, there are a few things that I want to pick out for you to understand. Um, I mentioned that Matthew's gospel is the most Jewish of the gospels. I mentioned even that starting with a genealogy is a very Jewish practice. Um, there are some very un-Jewish things in this genealogy. And one that I want to point out to you is that Matthew lists five women in this list. Now, that is very unusual for a, a Jewish genealogy. But Matthew gives us Rahab and Tamar and Ruth and Bathsheba and finally down to Mary. And as Jewish as this gospel is, Matthew does at times hint that he is looking outside of the Jewish people with this message. And here is one, one evidence of that. He brings these women into Jesus' genealogy as though they are important characters. Christianity, and in particular conservative Christianity, is often accused of being patriarchy, subduing women, um, not valuing them. That is not the case, and we can see that here. Not only does Matthew include four women, but he includes a number of Gentiles, and three of them are the same. Rahab was a Canaanite. Tamar was a Canaanite. Ruth is a Moabite. These are not Jews. And so what we see here is God's grace at work. Um, Bathsheba probably was a Jew, but she married a Hittite. So that was a bit taboo at the time. We see God's grace, and it breaks down gender barriers, national barriers, class barriers, society barriers. We can look at this list and see that there are all kinds of people. There are even a few sinners in David's line. Rahab and Tamar, incestuous, prostitutes. We can look at Manasseh, 
and Jehoiakim. These are some of the worst of the worst in terms of kings that Judah had to offer. I find it interesting that in verse, um, I wrote down verse 6. That's not it. It is verse 6. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Well, why would he bring that up? Even Abraham, we see in, in Genesis, records of Abraham's sins. The Bible is honest, even about its heroes. And if we look at this list, one tendency might be to be discouraged. You know what? All of these are terrible people. But I want to say, this shows us God's grace. It shows us God's grace in the worst of the worst and the best that Israel has to offer. And that they all fall short. And we can be encouraged by that because, as, as I talked about at the beginning of this, God is sovereign. In, in our Sunday school class, we talked about um, the father of John the Baptist and how God silenced him, Zecharias, because he questioned God's pronouncement that he would have a son in his old age. And there are those who would say that God silenced Zecharias because his speech, his negative manifestations were interfering with God's plan, and so God had to cut him off. Let me say to you this morning, there is nothing that can interfere with God's plan. Look at this list. See all of the sinners on it. If God can bring a perfect Messiah out of this list of people, that is an amazing thing. We can talk about testimony. How has God worked in your life? What is he doing in your life right now? We may, we may go through life with training, with education, growing up in church. We've got a good start. But at the end of the day, we're all just stumbling through life. It is God who brings us to the truth. It is God who enables us to live by the truth. We're all Mr. Magoo, and God is moving all of the circumstances. Praise God that we were able to celebrate a baptism today, that we are able to celebrate communion together and remember what God did to bring us here to reconcile us to himself, to give us fellowship with each other. We had this couple over last night, and it just hit me. It is such a blessing to sit in the fellowship of believers. We are God's people whom he has brought together, and we are all blessed in Jesus Christ. We're waiting. We are waiting for Jesus to return. And as we prepare to celebrate communion, let's be encouraged that God is gracious that he is merciful and faithful to keep his promises for thousands upon thousands of years. We may not know what he's doing, but God will keep his promises. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we come before you, we rejoice that you have brought Keith to yourself and that you have brought all of us to yourself. We thank you for your word for your Holy Spirit, we thank you for your sovereignty. As we prepare to celebrate communion in remembrance of what you have done for us, I pray that you would just sober and bless each of our hearts through the knowledge that you love us and care for us. I pray that you would bless our fellowship time as we prepare to celebrate potluck this afternoon 
And I pray that you would just joyfully send us forth from here to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.